everyone, and welcome to the Clearly Product Book Club podcast. I am Sandy McPherson. And I'm Anna Marie Clifton. And today, the book that we're going to be chatting about is High Output Management by Andrew Grove, aka Andy Grove, who was one of the founders and CEO of Intel, who passed away just over a year ago. Andy did his PhD at Cal and then worked at Notorious Fairchild Semiconductor, one of the very first Silicon Valley tech companies founded by the Notorious Traitorous Eight. Intel was one of the foundational companies of the tech world, and this book, which was first released in 1983, was de facto reading for tech execs in the 80s, 90s, and still today. A friend of mine, his father actually used to work at Intel, and he had weekly meetings with Andy. He said that he was the most competent person that he had ever met. And after reading this book, I'm not surprised by that assessment. Managing people is one of the most important skills a PM needs to master, which is why we chose this time-tested book to teach us how it's been done in the Bay Area for the past four decades. That's so long. Four decades. I know. Yeah, I really enjoyed reading this book. Definitely learned a lot. And uh, so one of the things that I wanted to talk about, first of all, here is he talks about the three premises of the book or the three kind of parts of the book. Mm -hmm. And the first is that this is an output approach to management which is a concept that a manager's output is what you should be measuring and what you should be trying to leverage and make more. Yeah. Um, we can go into later like how he defines the manager's output, but just like defining that as the approach to management. It's all about output. The second thrust of the book is around work being a team endeavor and how no individual does the work, but it's like it all comes from the whole team. And then his third point is around how teams can't be effective until individuals are. And he goes deeper into the skills around managing individuals, how to work with individuals, how to leverage their work and get them to be as high performing as they can. One of the last little things I wanted to say is I I think this should be kind of a fourth point going back and touching on the team topic. Okay. Yeah. And I think, I mean, this is kind of the, the reality of having been written four decades ago and there's not as much research in this area at the time. But one of the things that I found is that there's not a whole lot that he addresses around how to improve like a team's dynamic Mm. and like, There's the research that Google's done around psychological safety and how that has so much impact on how a team functions. So I just wanted to kind of touch on that point a little bit. Did you feel that way or did you think the book was like already a whole cohesive story? Did you also get that? So I have one of the points that I have was around how I thought that he did a really good job giving credence to the sort of emotional and soft skills Mm. related to people and how people interact. So I actually kind of thought that he did do a good job on that in relation to, and the fact that like the book is, I think one of the, one of my overarching feelings on this book was that it was really, really dense, but also really, really short. Mm. And like, I thought he was able to get points across that were really important in really succinct, clear ways that were very easy to understand. And I thought that he did touch on that stuff. To a decent degree. Yeah, I felt that a lot of his his topics around soft skills were mm-hmm. really one-to-one mm-hmm. soft skill conversations. Um, he, he talks a little bit about how to do one-on-one meetings and things like that and how to do performance reviews and various things that are all very emotionally driven mm-hmm. or emotionally charged, rather. And I, I definitely appreciated that, and I thought he did a really great job of that, but I thought it was all very, like, one person with another single person. Sure. And he didn't really touch on, like, the matrices of like, how teams affect each other and how that like managing that dynamic it felt very much as like a single node of a manager like working independently with reports Mm -hmm. and it didn't feel like 
he touched very much on how the reports, how to help the reports work better together. Mm, right. And that's sure, yeah. something that I think is um, just something we think about more now, yeah. something that's more possible now because of communication uh, opportunities with the technologies that we have and a lot about how we think about team support and team psychological safety. Sure. Yeah. And I guess there's also potentially at this time, again, random assumption I'm pulling out of my back pocket right now mm-hmm. is that things were much more individual contributor driven mm-hmm. at this point in time versus now when they're much more, I feel like probably things are more collaborative, how they're done today. Again, random. Right. Got yeah. guess. I also that. feel that way. Yeah. And he, I mean, he touched on like one of the, the points, the major points of the book is that teams are where work happens. It doesn't happen right. at the individual level. But I don't I think he's still he doesn't go far enough there. He's really still talking just about one to one relationships from a manager to individuals on the team sure. and less about how the teams just like interface significantly more together. Right. Today. So I guess we are you're almost talking about like outside of the purview of the manager. Correct. How are people actually interacting with each other when they're not there? Right. And Got then it. what is what is the manager's job and opportunity right. to leverage that and to like make it, that more successful for the entire in theory, team? theory, that's like happening much more frequently than the manager's time spent directly with each of those people. Exactly. Got it. Got yeah. it. Yeah. So I guess to to just sort of continue along, I'll, I'll go a little bit deeper into the, the point that I had related to that was I felt that Andy did a really great job being very explicit around this is how and why some of the social and emotional dynamics can impact the people on your team. And so he gives an example of, yeah, like people don't want to be dumb in meetings. They don't want to sound dumb. Like he's very just like straight up. Like Mm -hmm. he doesn't sort of like coax it with this. There are social norms. Mm -hmm. He literally says like, people don't want to be dumb. (laughs) And I'm like, okay, I appreciate that. The other point that I really enjoyed where he exposes some of the social and emotional sort of like stickiness around being a manager was in relation to when someone says they're quitting. Mm. Yes, of course, if they're a high performer and you want them to stay, it's important how you interact with them. But it's also important in how you interact with them in relation to what everyone else sees. So, like, I think a lot of people would have just focused on, like, if you don't give them the attention right away, they'll feel like they're not important. But also, in addition, like the second level effect is that then all of the other people are like, oh, he wanted to quit. And he said, come see me on Friday at 3 p.m. I have some time then. Mm. And so he actually goes into how it affects the the company more broadly, which I appreciate it. Mm. The other examples, there's two other examples that I wrote down that I really enjoyed. He speaks to uh, this idea of recycling people, Mm, which is how. So what he means by that is if you have someone on your team and they don't perform as expected or to the level that they are supposed to, it's in actuality the fault of the manager for putting them in a position that they were not capable of doing well. And this is specifically around promoting them into that place. Promoting like people, not hiring yeah. them into that place. Yes. And so the idea is that there's a lot of social stigma around asking someone to stay when they have not achieved a promotion and to basically cycle through or to recycle through the same level or tier of role again. And he speaks to how that's difficult, but what will often happen is the person is obviously like they're they're there for a reason. They're actually going to be able to pull it off, but they just need some time. And you need to be aware of the fact that now they basically have like a little bit of stink on them and you need to make sure that they feel safe and comfortable and the like shame 
is not there with them so they can actually do the job well. Right. And this is, again, if they've been promoted into a job that you realize they can't do, how yeah. to like recycle them back down to yeah. the previous level, which yeah. is kind of against... He talks a little bit about the Peter Principle, which mm-hmm. is something that... What is the Peter Principle? I find fascinating. So the Peter Principle <laughs> is from Peter Drucker, I think, from God, mid-20th century, early 20th century. And he has a principle around management that individuals will continue to be promoted until they reach a level of incompetence. Which is to say that once you stop getting promoted, that's the point at which you're probably not very competent. And so the theory goes that anyone in a high up position has basically either on their way to higher positions or is already incompetent there. And the I, th- I thought it was really interesting how and- Andy comments that it's not just that they are moving into a level where they're incompetent. And then if they get competent, then they'll get promoted again. Mm-hmm. He kind of shifts it up a little bit where he's. He talks about like promotion as a, as a lagging indicator of competence. Right. Yep. So you're already post-competent in your earlier role. Then you get promoted, you're, ostensibly you get promoted to a role where you are roughly competent mm-hmm. because you were above competent at the lower role. You're roughly competent in your new role. And then you move to exceeds expectations again. And you kind of go through, he has like much more optimistic yep. perspective on it. Yep. And then, you know, he, yeah, his, his comment about if you promote someone into a role where they take too long to get to that competence. They, they don't level out as quickly as you thought they would. How to like recycle them back down to where they were and then maybe try again in like a yeah. year or two. Yeah. I've seen it done uh, really effectively. I've oh, definitely okay. had a couple instances here at Yammer where someone was specifically around management. If you get promoted into management, uh-huh. stepping back down into an individual contributor role oh, because management can sometimes not be the right fit. Sure. I've had a few colleagues go through that. Okay. And how was that perceived broadly across the team or other people? I think pretty well. I think there's just a lot of respect for an individual's, like those people were good. They were really good at their individual contribution level. And so getting them back Mm -hmm. in that capacity was seen as a positive thing as Uh, much as it was like management didn't work out for them. Right. Interesting. I guess the final piece that I really enjoyed, again, under this umbrella of him touching on the soft skills and the things that are more related to having EQ was around the topic of performance reviews and how you can't just give someone their performance review. You need to give it to them in a way that they get it. Right. And I was like, oh, that's so like basic and simple. But it's true. Like he goes through all of this, this hard work of outlining, like what is a performance review and how should you give one and who should give it and how frequently, like all of the details and then like delivery, like you should do it. You should give them the handwritten copy before, not after. And like all of this stuff. But then it's true that if at the very end, if you're sitting there speaking to the person and they don't actually get it, mm-hmm then all of that other stuff that you've done, all of that other work is, I mean, useless, basically. And so I found that he did that across all of his examples and all of the guidance that he gives is there's always these little like nuggets, typically at the end or near the end after he's talked about an idea or a theory or what he's learned, where he touches on the actual people involved and how to ensure that what you're doing is being thoughtful of the people and how he basically has empathy. Yeah. He's like does a really great job of expressing how he's felt empathy toward the people who work with him mm-hmm. and give some guidance on how as a manager to, he, he sort of raises up empathy as being important in how you do your job. Yeah. And I think one of the places that comes from is just sheer competence yeah. On his side. Like this book reads like someone yeah. who's been doing yeah. this. Like I said, my friend who, yeah, his dad worked for him. He said that he was the most competent person 
he'd ever met. Yeah. And at this point, I was probably like 75% of the way through the book. Oh. And I was like, yeah. I was like, that's the perfect word to describe this guy. Yeah. And he has, it's really interesting because he has a lot of anecdotes throughout the course of the book of like, and then I did it this way. Right. And then I did it this way and it worked really well. And I did it this other way this one time and it didn't work that well. And then I saw someone else do it a third way and that definitely failed. Yeah. And then also even when he touches on hiring and he comments about how like he's even had really strong positive signals on people yeah. giving them offers and then they failed miserably yeah. and he yeah. still looks back on it and still doesn't understand. Yeah. Like he's just clearly done these things often enough that yeah. he can like pull patterns out of it yeah. and is really good about pulling patterns. Yeah. He says, he's like, you know, I learned this one the hard way. And he's like, again, it's obvious that the number of cycles that he's been through is very high. Yeah. Which is interesting. I read it as a current PM now and then ostensibly as a people manager at some point in the future and I think about like all of these things that he's learned from the hard way. I'm like, yeah. oh God, <laughs> get ready. <laughs> you too. Yeah. yeah. One day, one day. So something a little bit more on, on his theory of management. He talks a little bit about how management has fundamentally changed since the industrial revolution. He talks about this, this shift that happened where historically managers predominantly leaned on fear as a right. motivating factor. And they were able to lean on fear as a motivating factor because output was almost 100% quantifiable. Mm -hmm. It's like very easy to see if you've produced eight widgets today instead of the, right. the nine <laughs> you were supposed to. And then yeah. voila, you'll lose your job and the next person will produce the nine that they're supposed to. And I thought that was, yeah, that was an interesting observation on his point that it's shifted to, as of when he wrote the book in the 80s, that since output is less quantifiable and less like, tieable to an individual's output, like an individual's effort is not directly quantifiable to the output of the team, that managers are using more aspirational tactics for, for motivation mm -hmm. um, and become a lot nicer in general. So mm -hmm. I, I thought that was like an interesting observation to notice. I wonder if he were to do the book again now, if mm -hmm. he would talk even about a third shift, because I see just in how I look at the progression of work over the past few decades that we're even less measurable now. The knowledge output that we have across the team the lines of code that an engineer writes, like how can you tie that directly to the overall success of a company or a team? And it looks like from my perspective that as work has become less and less and less quantifiable, we are doing even more aspirational, more motivational and more like absurd right. perks yeah. in order to attract and retain talent. And I wonder if like, if we were able to, and I'm not sure that we ever could or ever should like try and figure out how to like, quantify a designer's output or an engineer's right. output or something like that would Silicon Valley, like, would we lose our perks? Because are those there because we can't measure like are all of the, the motivational, like the team building exercises and things mm -hmm. like that, all the stuff that we kind of throw. It's almost like that advertising adage that like half your money on advertising is wasted. You just can't tell which half. Uh, right. So like, we're just kind of like pouring a lot of money. Like we're seeing yeah. that the tech companies specifically have a really disproportionate output for mm -hmm. the number of people in them, but it's difficult to identify so like who's we, responsible for what. Are we living in a world of constant false positives? Right. Right. <laughs> so I wonder if you, if you would identify that. It is kind of sad. <laughs> I kind of wonder if like the, you know, the team building opportunities and those, all the extra perks would like fade away if yeah. we were more quantifiable in our outputs. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think one of the because you're sort of touching on I, ha I had a point around this idea of how and why people, again, in the Bay Area, in Silicon Valley, think about progress and success in relation to their work. Mm -hmm. Like personal career success? Uh, yeah, because he speaks to, again, like in the motivation part of the book, he mentions Maslow's hierarchy of needs and how people I think I think most people who we know who work in tech 
are pretty high up <laughs> on that. But I think what you're talking about is slightly different in terms of are those perks and things, are they inputs to how and where people place themselves mm-hmm. on yep. that? And how does that then trickle down to what is the actual impact on the companies themselves? Because one of his things is he says that, yeah, having peak performers is what prompts success in a company. Mm -hmm. And so you're making the assumption that the peak performer is performing at their peak because they are satisfied by the perks and things that they receive. But yeah, it's questionable whether that's actually doing it. Yeah, yeah. So kind of related, there was one thing that he hints at, which I thought was hilarious that this was not hilarious, but I thought it was very interesting that this was something that he raised in 1983, which is about the culture of how people dress in Silicon Valley as as being more casual. Yeah. And I was like, yes. And I was like, I thought it was so interesting to hear how and why he described it. So what he says is he says that status symbols most certainly do not promote the flow of ideas, facts, and points of view. What appears to be a matter of style really is a matter of necessity. And this idea of when you have, and what he talks about in terms of people, and when you get people together to have meetings and make decisions, you have position power versus knowledge power people, Mm -hmm. and you need to mix them together to make decisions. Mm -hmm. And if you mix those people together, then the people with the status symbols won't get along with the people with the knowledge symbols. And it's funny, like I've had, there's like lots of people who, I, I mean, it's like a, it's basically like a known thing, I believe where if you're going to have a meeting with a bunch of engineers, don't wear a suit. Yeah. (laughs) Like, I just thought it was really hilarious that, I mean, I I knew that and I had heard that and like people kind of sort of like gave me explanations and like surface reasons as to why that existed. But for him to actually name it and explain it in that way from 1983. Yeah. I was like, wow, it's so deep in like the culture and it's been around for so long in this part of the world. And I thought it was funny and hilarious. And also I think potentially helpful to people who don't live here to understand, like for me anyway, I always like to understand like the root cause of why something is the way it is. And so I thought he did a really good job of actually explaining why it is that way. And it's even, that's one thing that people have commented about the cover where on the cover of this book, if you look at it, he's standing there and he's like, he's wearing, I mean, he's wearing a dress shirt and slacks pants mm-hmm. but i mean he's no tie he's the ceo of a public company but he has his little fucking whatever swipey badge card yeah, thing yeah which badge. is so like nerdy and casual but he's just kind of like a i don't give a fuck kind of guy like this is like i work this is what i look like when i work like i'm not gonna spend time like doing a fancy photo shoot and it was again i thought like pushes this idea of the main focus of everything that a company does is to optimize output and success of the company, even if, again, it means people potentially changing slightly how it is that they interact with each other mm-hmm. because it's for the end goal of the company's success. Yeah, I think that's another example of just how nugget-packed this book is because that was just a kind of yeah. throwaway Yeah, comment. that was like a line. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So definitely agree. This is like a very a very dense, short book yeah. with a lot of a lot of power there. Yeah. So something I'm thinking about this whole time as I'm reading this book is kind of the split brain that I'm approaching it with as a product manager. Like, what does that mean? Because this is high output management, not high output product management, right? And he talks a little bit about who the book is for, and it's for people who manage people, but it's also for what he calls know-how managers, which are these people who are locus of knowledge and they have 
like the ability to either spread that knowledge around the org in a more leveraged way or like keep it to themselves and stunt the growth of the company. And I basically approached this book from the perspective of a know-how manager. Mm. Um, and then also kind of in the back of my mind for like, I do want to be a people manager at some point. And so I'm thinking about like, what can I learn and prepare and watch for now? Mm. I'm wondering if you thought about that from a PM perspective, were you also like in the a PM as a know-how manager? Did you also take that away? I think I probably thought about it in both ways mm-hmm. <laughs> because there's been various points over the past few years as I've been working on my company that I have managed people or I have not managed people. There's mm-hmm. been times where I have only managed product. There are times when I have managed product plus managed people. Mm-hmm. So one of the things that I'm thinking about from the PM side mm-hmm. is can you map this output idea to product management? And if so, what is a PM's output? Mm-hmm. And so I think I'm kind of landing on a product manager's output is the output of your project teams. Mm-hmm plus the tangential gains that the company gets from what you spread outside of your project from like sharing that knowledge back out. That's less quantifiable. And I'm not sure exactly how to tie that into something as clean as he has, which is the manager's output is the output of their teams as well as any team that they have leverage or impact over. So not necessarily people they have in their org, but also other orgs that they can share with. So yeah. So thinking about the product manager's output being the output of your project teams And then just kind of as I'm thinking about it, the way I've kind of defined that is what do you get to customers? Mm -hmm. How good is it and how quickly? Right. That's kind of how I'm defining as I'm thinking about what is it that makes a successful PM? How do you measure that? Things like that. Because he does give he gives an example, I think probably like three quarters of the way through with this woman named Cindy Mm -hmm. and how her and I'm not able to flip to the page quickly, but. I think he mentions that she manages a team. He talks about how the engineers on her team are her customer. Right. Like he's able to sort of adapt the framework to different types of teams and organizations. Right. And she doesn't have any like people that report to her, but she's kind she's, I think she's like a project manager at a plant. Okay. So it's a very similar parallel. Yeah. And I thought a lot about like my kind of, I I identified a lot of Cindy there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I was thinking a little bit about like how that, would shape the way I think about what I do. Mm-hmm. If I'm just thinking about like what I get to customers or what my teams get to customers, how quickly and like what quality mm-hmm. it's really easy to get hung up. And he mentioned this for, for managers of people as well. It's just so easy to get hung up on like what the activity mm-hmm. of management looks like. The activity is meetings. The activity is decisions. The activity is all these things that we think of that managers do with their time. But really your goal as a manager is to be getting high output and the activity is only interesting insofar as it's useful right. towards output. Right. Um, and so doing a good job is not about doing a good job of that activity, mm-hmm. but it's about getting good output. So I think about like what it means to have an output mindset as a PM as opposed to an activity mindset. Because right. it's so easy to think about like, oh, like how I did many, this thing I, that I'm supposed to do. And exactly. so therefore success. Exactly. Yeah. Like I have this project that's going through product review that w- went really well. I got really yeah. good feedback in the feature. Like the bug bash went really well. Or like everyone on the team is really happy and working well together. But all of that is to the end goal of getting things in front of customers yeah. of high quality and quickly. And, and, and kind I, of shifted how I think about yeah. my work. Yeah, well, it's good, too, because he ties it to, I have that as like a, a quick note to this idea of, yeah, how you need to develop indicators or metrics that are output focused, not activity focused. Right. And he also talks about, and I don't have the exact quote here, but he also talks about how one of the things they have to recognize as a manager, again, in this like amorphous, however you want to apply it to yourself and mm-hmm. this manager role, there's endless stuff you could be doing. Mm-hmm. Like you could be information gathering 
forever. So he also talks about the three roles of the manager, which is information gathering, nudging or like influencing other people to do things and making decisions. Mm -hmm. So in theory, you could do like, yeah, like information gathering. You could do that forever. Like Mm -hmm. you could read all of the books. You Mm -hmm. could read all of the articles. You Mm -hmm. could do everything. And if your measurement for how good or how successful you are being at your role is based on activity, in theory, you're doing amazingly because Mm -hmm. you're reading all the things, but it's not actually tied to any output. Right, right. So my main takeaway from this book is to like take a real strong look at what the output of my teams is and then how I'm like measuring my success against that. Right. Basically. Yeah. No, that, that makes a lot of sense. So to, to just continue along that point, I think that how he highlighted those three areas, collecting information, nudging and making decisions. I was when I when I read that, I was like, that is what I do. <laughs> I was like, I've never been able to articulate it so clearly. I was mm-hmm. like, of course, that's what I do. And it's funny. I was like, that's how I can tell my family when they ask me, like, so I don't understand what you do, Sandy. What is your job? And they're always confused. Hmm. I was like, that's a really great little like matrix of things that I do. Yeah, I just I was sort of like shocked at how how transparent and like obvious that was when I read it. I was like, of course, that mm-hmm. is what I do. And like, I can talk about, you know, writing emails and asking people to do things and having meetings and reading stuff and all of these things. But it is true that they all fall under. I, I always knew that decision making was important. And right. I spent like a bunch of time thinking about decision making and mm-hmm. biases and mental models and all that type of stuff. But I hadn't quite identified the other two as being the lead up or the material that's needed for that final decision making point. This kind of bleeds into my next point, which is around, he discusses that if you are trying to maximize your output as a manager, which is defined as the output of your reports, and there's only two ways to affect the output of your reports, you can either motivate them or you can train them. How do you think that maps into the the three-pronged information gathering, nudging, and decision-making? Is that just all nudging, motivation, and training? Motivation and training. I mean, I think they would come into, I think it would be in the information as well. Because I think that you could, as you're going out and gathering information, you're able to, to transfer that. But the transfer is like a separate action, right? The dissemination. Of oh, that I guess is the nudging. Yeah. I guess that kind of falls into nudging. Yeah. It feels like a little bit. So that's one of the things that I really loved about this book is he, he like distills that if you want people to do a better job at something, you can only ever motivate them if they're unmotivated or train them if they're yeah. incompetent. Yeah. Like those are yeah. your two axes. Yeah. And that was just so, it's so crystalline yeah. again, like per, per your point about the, those three, I guess that falls into nudging there. It's yeah. Yeah. And I'm curious there. I think about like as a, as a PM motivation is one of the main vectors that I think about mm-hmm. uh, because I obviously I have no authority over the teams that I'm working with. I'm just trying to motivate them to be ex- like, understand the goal of what we're trying to do and how that ties into our higher level objectives as a company. I don't really think about training mm-hmm. very much as a PM. I've done a fair amount of sharing knowledge back into the org and making sure that knowledge transfer is happening. Uh, I've done a little bit of training around how we make decisions based on data and just walked some of our other teams through how we think about that Mm -hmm. so they can be more active participants in those conversations. But I kind of leave that up to the leads of the functional teams. And I wonder if it's something that a know-how manager, as he describes it, or a PM should be more involved in. I feel, though, that from what I've heard about what you do at Yammer, don't you have like teams come together and you share like, this is what we learned on this project. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we have a few it's touch kind of points sort like of that. training. I mean, yeah, it's, it's a not... training. Like that's what I'm talking about. Like I have this yeah. knowledge dissemination that I do. Yeah. That is part of like every PM's job is to share back into the org when you learn something in a project. Yeah. What you learned and how that changes your opinions about what we should do moving forward. But it's not necessarily training. Like one of the things that comes to mind is that our analysis team recently started doing a series of workshops on good hypothesis generation. Mm-hmm. And so they're doing that for the PM team. They're also doing that for the design team. So mm-hmm. that the design team knows how to push back against PMs on our oh, hypotheses, basically. So it's, yeah. it's not even just like because the designers are going to have these, but just because they want to make sure that they know how to communicate with us effectively there. Sure. And I know obviously the on the technical side, there's a lot of training that goes around in the various back end working front end and like people teaching each other things around hack days and things like that. Mm-hmm. But I don't really take a lot of time with my project teams to help like train them in anything. And I don't feel like I have a whole lot that I would be training them. Yeah. And it feels like if I'm measuring my output based on the output of my project teams, mm-hmm. and then this is one of the main vectors that I have to affect that is training. I'm not touching that at all. Yeah. So I don't really know. I, I feel like that kind of falls out of the the know-how manager spectrum. Uh-huh. Yeah, because I mean, I think, it, yeah, it's interesting how you, it, yeah, it's true that if those are your two levers and one of them, because to me, it sounds like training exists. Like it doesn't sound in, in your org right now. It right. sounds like, yeah, it's not overly formal. It falls under like different clusters of people and not necessarily f- directly from you. But it's true then, yeah, if that is, if those are your two levers and one of them is outside of your control. Right, then should how I do, do you, more with it? Or does it actually just mean that you need to, you need to not offer the training yourself, but you need to potentially go higher up right, and nudge. to nudge someone else to suggest that something needs to exist for that will then trickle down to your project teams. Yeah, that's, I think, one of my main takeaways from this book in terms of something that I can do day to day to like help work with my teams more is like work with the functional managers of those functional teams, be it the the design manager, the like uh, front end manager, things like that, and try and figure out like what it is that I'm seeing across my teams mm-hmm. that might make sense for a training opportunity. Right. It is pretty informal though, in yeah. terms of like how a training like it spontaneously arises as a workshop, a brown yeah. bag, something like that. Yeah. The way the Grove talks about it in this book is pretty darn formal. Yeah. It has like, He's like courses. Yeah. <laughs> and again, it might just be the time. Right? Yeah. It might just be the early 80s. Like you couldn't just be like, hey, everybody, grab a sandwich. Go hang out here and chat. Hmm. I don't know. It could be that it took, well, so at the time, it probably took a lot more lead time to let people know that a thing was happening. Yeah. Yep. And since we can just like immediately let people know Hang that something's someone, happening. Yeah. yeah. So maybe it's just yeah. like pushes towards a less formal structure around everything. Yeah. Interesting. The one final thing that I wanted to chat about, which I'm thinking, hoping you have something on as well, is about hiring and interviewing. Hmm. Did you have any points on that? I had a lot of thoughts, but I didn't thoughts. like okay. congeal them into a okay. point. So I was going to okay. skip over that. Okay. But we, go can, we can float around then. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I really liked, he comes up with this term, task relevant maturity, mm. which he calls TRM. And TRM is how skilled you are at a certain task and how it relates to the job that you're doing. And when you have a low TRM person doing a certain job, the manager will have to be much more involved. You'll need to have a lot more oversight. You'll need to give more guidance. You'll have to have shorter gaps between check-ins because the person is, they're still learning. They're not very mature at doing that certain task. And as I thought about it, I was like, oh yeah, I was like, there's been It was about a year ago now I hired a suite of, I want to say like five people 
to work on various things related to content, content marketing and content in other ways. And what's interesting is as I thought about it through this lens of TRM, I was like, oh yeah, the two people where there were some troubles with them was they had a low TRM mm-hmm. or my understanding of their TRM was higher than actual. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it was true that I think just naturally I sort of adjusted and was like, oh, this person like clearly isn't as mature and their skills here. Mm-hmm. They need more help. And so I was like more active with them. I would see them more frequently. I would have to be more hands-on with them versus the people who had a higher TRM. I could just sort of be like, off to the races, like mm-hmm. talk to you next week. And a lot of stuff would get done and mm-hmm. they didn't need my input as much. Again, it sounded like something that was very obvious, but stepping back, I was like, oh, this TRM principle is something that I think now that I have a better understanding of what that is, I'll be able to apply that going forward as I think about hiring people and like, oh, I can actually think about, okay, explicitly, Sandy, how are you going to define what is this person's TRM in mm-hmm. relation to what they're pre because that's the other thing he talks about is oftentimes you may assume that the TRM from a previous position or a previous role right. can translate to whatever job it is that you're asking them to do now. And that's not always the case. Yeah. I've experienced this firsthand, both for myself being kind of misidentified mm. and then also with other people. And I think it happens pretty frequently yeah. in product management specifically yeah. because it's so typical to come into product management from another either industry or from outside that task, Mm -hmm. even if you are in tech, coming in from maybe being an engineer to being a PM. There are very, very, very few companies that hire people like straight out of college to go into product, Mm -hmm. right? And then those, I mean, there's like Facebook, Google, a few of those, Microsoft as well, actually. But even then they have a ton of training. They have a ton of training. And there's only, I mean, only like 10 to 20 of them a year, right? So like grand total, there's about 100 PMs a year that are, specifically hired knowing that they know nothing, yeah. right? Okay, everyone else who becomes a PM comes from some other either task within uh, industry or from outside yeah. of industry. So they have a lot of maturity or they can have a lot of maturity in whatever it is that they're doing. And I have seen more than once where a manager has kind of assumed that that will translate directly mm-hmm. with product specifically. And it's really unfortunate to both experience that and also to watch that happen mm-hmm. because it's difficult to communicate to someone that you like with my personal story. Like I did not know what I was doing when I first got into product and I'm still obviously learning a lot every day, but I really didn't know what I was sure. doing when I first got into it. <laughs> but the people I was working with didn't really anticipate that because I came from like another career. I had a whole other industry behind me and mm-hmm. they just assumed I'd you know understood that some of these things. And so you don't get some of that attention that you need and some of that direction. Specifically, the biggest difference is with a lower task-relevant maturity, there's a a need for a more directed path where the manager will like lay out this is what you do versus like finding your own path. And you can really get enough rope to hang yourself if someone lets you make your own path in this industry that you're just hitting for the first time. And that was exactly what I saw too with the people who I hired was the people who had low TRM where I assumed it was higher. Mm -hmm. They did a couple things where... They made a lot of mistakes mm-hmm. and they were not good mistakes. And I was like, whoa, okay. Like, and it was like, I, I was able to sort of like, okay, wait, like slow down. Mm-hmm. Let's go back. I'm going to like be much more involved now and walk you through this. Right. But it can be incredibly awkward for both yeah. the manager and yeah. like the manager yeah. or the report yeah. to no. like define and speak up and say, hey, you know, I actually do need more direction and more support here. Cause it feels, it feels almost like failing, even yeah. though it's not, and yeah. you're just kind of expected to perform at a different level than you're, you're at. So one of the things that I'm, I'm just hypersensitive to that now, because I went through that myself, 
And one of the things that I've found has been really important with working with someone like I didn't manage this report necessarily, but I was working kind of mentoring a new hire who came from outside of industry. And the thing that I found that was the most meaningful in our relationship was me kind of defining what was an acceptable parameter of mess up. Mm -hmm. Like how far can you fuck up before it's actually a problem and kind of draw that boundary really comfortably around Mm -hmm. the work so that the person knows like, okay, this is where I should be living and making my mistakes. And the way Andy refers to it in the book is he talks about how, yes, people need to make their own mistakes, but oftentimes that the tuition for that learning is paid by the customer. Right. Yeah. And so I think it's important in the product industry to, to define what are the boundaries within which a fuck up isn't actually going to cost the customer. Yeah. Well, cause then it empowers also the person to not empower them, but it gives them permission to fail mm-hmm. when otherwise they have to I think otherwise you would feel that you would have to ask permission for every time that you fail or apologize for every time that you fail versus Mm -hmm. if you're assigned a zone, a fail zone, Mm -hmm. you can go in there and fail, 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 and not have to spend the, you know, social, emotional currency Mm -hmm. around talking to somebody about it or admitting it or whatever versus if you're in your little sandbox and you know that you're good and you can just keep going. And then also, you know, if and when you're getting into like ouch zone. Right, right, right. You can go and talk to someone about it. And it it saves the time of your manager because they don't have to respond to all of your questions about, is this okay? Is this okay? Is this okay? Is this okay? Kind of like define the fail zone. I found that to be the most useful thing for me personally, the most useful thing that I've seen other people experience as well. Mm -hmm. So if you're managing PMs, especially someone who's come into product from another industry, like give them a fail zone and understand that you're going to have to like walk them through a little bit more directed path. Yeah. And this was, I mean, I think this, I may have mentioned this on a previous episode. I don't remember which one, but I had this one person who, yeah, their TRM was clearly lower than I expected. And we got into this awkward situation where they were too embarrassed to Mm. admit that, like I kept, I was like, we need to do this and here's how you do it. And here's the spreadsheet. And I would sit down with them and we would spend the time doing it. And she would be like, okay, yeah, I'm going to go like, I got it. Cool. Mm. See you later. And then we would come back next time and there would be no progress. And I was like, what's going on here? And so I would spend a little bit more time and it got to the point where after like two or three sessions, I realized, okay, she just is not going to be able to to do this. Mm -hmm. And so it was like an interesting, because I think that's the other thing is that sometimes you may not actually be able to get the person to the point that they need to be. Right. And that's what happened here is we, I kept working with her. I was literally like spent, like we spent several hours on this one project and it was tied to a bunch of calculations and she was just not, she just wasn't able to be analytical enough Mm -hmm. to figure it out. And I tried and I sent her, you know, she was watching tutorial videos. Mm. I was trying to like give her again, all of this like training. I was motivating her because it was around how she was going to have this completely new way to look at her job mm. through this metrics lens. And she was really excited by it. And she clearly really wanted to, but she just couldn't do it. Mm. And so eventually I had to just sort of be like, okay, no, you're, I, I can tell that this is just not going to work. Mm-hmm. And I ended up having to do it myself. Total random thing that yes. just occurred to me right now. Did he talk about firing people? Mm, he talks about when people want to leave and yeah. how to retain them. I don't but think he, he talks about firing. He never really talked about what to do with a like systemically yeah. low performer. And he talks a lot about how to like identify performance when he goes into the performance review section, which yeah. was holla. <laughs> so, so digestible. It was like probably the most jam-packed meaty section of like how to do a thing yeah. that's I mean I've never had a performance review as good as the one that he's <laughs> described um gosh so 
Yeah, I don't think he really talks about how to handle a systemically mm-hmm. low performing. And that's it's interesting from the conversations I've had with managers that I'm friends with. It's the hardest yeah. thing yeah, they've ever done yep. is firing yep. someone. So I'm, I'm yeah. kind of surprised he didn't touch on that. Yeah, agree. It is a hard thing. One thing that I took away just as like a little tidbit, a little hack here. He talks a little bit about decisions and how making a decision is one of those three major vectors of things that a, a manager does. But he framed it in a certain way that stuck out to me. And I'm just like, mm, that's so beautiful. I'm, <laughs> I'm going to use that. I'm going to use that. So he talks about how when you walk into a room and you know that you're going to be making some decisions in that room. First of all, you want to keep it to like fewer than eight people. Which I thought was an interesting insight. Yeah. He said you, you need to have a concept of what decision needs to be made when it, it has to be made by who's going to decide who needs to be consulted prior to the decision and then who has like a veto right mm-hmm. and who needs to just be informed. Mm-hmm. So he's like these six things. And uh, one really stuck out to me. He talks a little bit about how, this is a quote here, if someone has an important say so or the right to veto, it may come across the decision later. If he does veto it, he can be regarded as a Johnny come lately who upsets the decision making apple cart. This, of course, <laughs> will frustrate and demoralize people who may have been working on it for a long time. Yeah. If the veto comes as a surprise, however legitimate it may have been on its merits, an impression of political maneuvering is inevitably created. Mm-hmm. And uh, in the industry these days, we call that one the swoop and poop. Oh, um, nice. I'm not sure if, you've, if you're familiar with that concept, but I have definitely witnessed this, been a part of this, felt this pain. Uh, and it really struck out to me that the, the person who has the veto right needs to be alerted as soon as possible Mm -hmm. because the longer you go under the assumption that this decision is valid, the more emotionally attached people get to it. And it can really hurt your velocity. I mean, it hurts your velocity first of all, for sure, because you put work into it, but really more so than that, it hurts your emotional ability to move forward as a team because you get really invested in something that you're excited about, especially after a decision has been made. Mm -hmm. So I really think this is one of the core PM competencies and uh, responsibilities Mm -hmm. is it's the PM's role is to get a decision in front of the veto holder as soon as possible. Okay. Um, and that's well, kind of my it, takeaway. it sort of relates to at the beginning of the book where he talks about production systems and how you need to remove like faulty inputs mm-hmm. early on. So it's kind of related in identifying where are the breakage points basically mm-hmm. and how do you test or push them earlier before you've invested time and resources into something that can't be untangled. Right. And the theory there being that the further along you are in the value chain, the worse it is. Because more value has been added and put into this thing. Right, right. So it kind of relates there. Yeah, yeah, it definitely does. It's interesting, though, because I think the way I had been thinking about it previously had always been around, like, what's the lost work? Mm-hmm. But it's not so much the lost work and the lost value, but it's like the demoralizing aspect right. of it is really right. strong. It is hard, too, though, because it's one of those things. So, like, I've been on the other side of that before where mm-hmm. I've had the veto power. Right. And it's one of these things where even though you are involved at, like, a fairly high frequency and you're mm-hmm. seeing something evolve and change and be built, sometimes you just can't get a sense for whether it's actually what it needs to be until it's yeah, until it's fully there. done, yeah. basically. Yeah, I think um, that's a different thing, though, behind, like, I, I'm thinking specifically around if a decision's made on a project team mm-hmm. that could be vetoed by the head of product. Oh, got it's it. important okay. that the head of product just sure, knows sure, about sure. that decision. Right. So yeah. I, I've taken to um, just making a thread update in a particular project group for any decisions that are made, CC, head of product, like, FYI, mm-hmm. these are the decisions we made. Like, I'm not asking permission. I'm not right. saying that these things are... Right. But if you want to veto... You got now to do veto it now. It. Exactly. Because you're not going to be able to do it next week. Exactly. Right. And there's, like, certain inflection points where stuff will build up and it's, like, time to, to make those decisions. Sure. So, again, my main takeaway is it's a PM's role to get those decisions in front of the veto holder 
as soon as possible so that they do have that perspective. And if, I mean, it's a totally different thing to come in at the end and see that something sure. didn't come together. Sure. Right. Yeah. 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 I get yeah. it. Yeah. I really enjoyed this book. I just need to say, yeah, <laughs> I think this was by far my favorite book out of all of the books that we've read so far. Hmm. I thought, and I think I said this at various points throughout our chat, but it's so dense mm -hmm. and so clear and simple the examples that are given again i mean it was written in 83 god and they still all make sense all the examples yeah. i think that is i mean that's deserving of an award on its own but i think that we we've tried to talk about some of the higher level things that he brought up but the book is chock-a-block full of like one-liners mm -hmm. that are amazingly insightful and so I think that spending the time, also it's like, it's 200 something pages. It's really short. And I mean, you can read it in an afternoon and yeah. I think it's totally worth your time. I think the fact that, I mean, I had heard about this book basically as soon as I moved to the Valley and I know that it is one of the, you know, if you have a bookcase of 10 books that you need to read, if you are a, in my case, a founder in the Valley in the Bay area, this is one of them, yet I had never <laughs> read it. And now I'm very happy that I have. Yeah. Um, and I think that it's insanely insightful and I really enjoyed it. Yeah. I, I'm, if we're doing, yeah, for my rating. Yeah, I, what's your rating? I'm rating it a five. Oh. I believe it deserves five ponies. Five out of five. Yeah. Man. Yeah. Oh, that's intense. Yeah. Five ponies. Yeah. I also, I really, really enjoyed it. I found it almost awkward to read it at times mm. because there were so many things that I was like, oh, I should be doing that. <laughs> oh, yeah. and I yeah, feel yeah, like yeah, I was yeah. like the whole time kind of like holding it to the side and like looking at it while I'm reading like, You're like you don't see me. You don't see me. <laughs> like cringe, cringe, cringe. Oh, I fucked that one up that one time yeah. so bad. Yeah, no, the same, same, <laughs> really? same with me. Yeah, yeah it, it struck a really personal, like compelling yeah. note. I was like, oh, that's why that happened. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Again, it's so easy to read in that it's very quick and like digestible but it's also difficult to read emotionally <laughs> if you are in a position of any kind of management because sure. you are definitely fucking some of this stuff up yep. and it will hit home <laughs> so i definitely i really really enjoyed it i'm very glad to have read it specifically in this format and to have like gone back afterwards and thought about notes and points that i mm. wanted to make i think there's a lot to be gained from this book more so than just reading it and he kind of talks about yep. that at the end he has kind of yeah, action it, steps yeah. to take and things like that um so it i think, feels like referency yeah to me. definitely i will i'm definitely going to put a, an alarm on my calendar to read this again maybe in a year and a half i will definitely read this again if and when i ever start people managing well the other nice thing is that there's so many chapters and they're all short and they're titled appropriately so right. if you have a certain question around a certain realm of what you're doing mm -hmm. i think i'm again i'm guessing but in the future it seems to me like it'll be pretty easy to go back to the book right to pick the section that you're currently struggling with and get some andy gems yeah absolutely and even even as i'm re like receiving performance reviews i think mm -hmm. i'll reference yeah. the performance yeah. review chapter mm -hmm. again possibly even like bring it into a one-on-one -on -one with my manager and mm -hmm. just talk about like this is something i'd like to see in our kind of performance review yeah. discussions rating i I think a five out of five is more what I would do if I were already managing people. Mm -hmm. I think there's more that I would be like, oh, yeah. <laughs> so I'm going to give it a potential five out of five, oh. but an actual 4.5. Oh, okay. um, so for me right now, this is 4.5 out of five. Very strong, strong book. I'm really glad that we read it. I'm glad that we read it in this format and took the time to talk about it. 
I'm really excited for all of our listeners to like hear us digest this and like speak to how relevant it still is. Because I think, again, I mean, you knew the people were talking about it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But you didn't like yeah. hit home. You never like prioritized it. Yeah. Um, definitely recommend if you're managed by someone or managing someone, yeah. read this book. Yeah. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed our little chat about high output management. Again, my name is Sandy McPherson. You can find me on Twitter at Sandy Mac, S-A-N-D-I-M-A-C. And I'm Anna Marie Clifton. You can find me at Twitter at Tweet Anna Marie. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. We're on iTunes and Stitcher. And follow us on Twitter at Clearly Product. Mm-hmm.